And I think it's important when we think about Lincoln and Obama not to try and make specific analogies because they live in such a different world. But one thing about Obama that is so Lincoln-esque is his use of language. And what Lincoln understood is, is that you can lead by eloquence. You can lead by explaining to people what is going on and giving people a higher purpose. And, and that's what Lincoln did fabulously. In the Gettysburg Address, he gives the nation a higher purpose for fighting this horribly bloody war. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. We're glad you could listen to us today. Uh, I'm coming to you from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. Bob, our show today is sponsored by Clio Huron Consulting Group, Landy Insurance, and Top Class Actions. We're, uh, of course, celebrating President's Day this week. And uh, for our program, we're going to highlight Abraham Lincoln in particular, the first Republican president who successfully led the country through its greatest internal crisis, the Civil War, helping to preserve the Union and end slavery. Well, not only are we celebrating President's Day this week, we are also commemorating the 200th birthday of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to look at this powerful figure in American history, his role as a lawyer, and discover why the great emancipator is a hero to so many. Helping us do that today are two guests. Uh, First off is a returning guest, Professor Paul Finkelman from the Albany Law School. Paul is a specialist in American legal history, race, and the law, and he's the author of more than 100 scholarly articles and more than 20 books. He's an expert in areas such as the law of slavery, constitutional law, and legal issues surrounding baseball, which is why he was on our show before to talk about that. He's published extensively and was recently named the ninth most cited legal historian, according to Brian uh, Leiter's law school rankings. Professor Finkelman recently gave a presentation titled The Great Emancipator as Lawyer. He also worked alongside Professor Martin J. Hershock on the book The Political Lincoln, an Encyclopedia. Welcome back, Paul Finkelman. It's a a delight to be back. It's always fun to be on your show. And our next guest is Jennifer Weber, PhD. She's an assistant professor at history at the University of Kansas, where she specializes in Civil War studies. Her first book, Copperheads, was published in 2006. She started her professional life as a journalist and later worked as a political aide in the California State Legislature. Lifelong interest in the Civil War eventually spurred her to pursue academics as a career. She's currently researching a book about conscription in the North and South during the Civil War. In addition to Jenny's work at UK, she served on the advisory panel for the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. Welcome to the show, Dr. Weber. Thanks very much for having me. Well, let's, for our listeners' benefit, um, get some kind of, get a little bit of general background on our president, Abraham Lincoln, and perhaps what spurred and got your interest uh, in him as a, as a president and as an individual. Well, I came to this in a really odd manner, I suppose. I got interested in Lincoln when I was learning how to read. 
and I was making my way through the biography section of our library, the children's section, and I hit the L's for Lincoln, and I, boy, I just thought he was the most interesting person I had ever known about, and I still feel that way all these years later. Paul, how about you? Oh, me. Okay. I'm, I'm, I wasn't sure whether she was done or not. You well, I'm not sure either. I didn't, didn't mean to cut her off. on the radio. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think that Lincoln is the central figure of American history. I, I think that the central question of American history was for uh, our first century and really our second century, the question of slavery and race and that Lincoln was the central figure in understanding how we evolved, how we, in a sense, redeemed ourselves. But what I think Lincoln did more than, than anything else is to redeem the the soul of the United States. Uh, Jefferson and the Declaration have said that we're all created equal, we're entitled to the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but at the time that Jefferson wrote those words, he, had, he owned 150 slaves. By the time he was president, he owned 200. Uh, by the time he died, he probably owned 225. He would have owned substantially more, but he sold many of them. Uh, so, you know, the, the personal Jefferson obviously didn't believe in, in the Declaration of Independence, even as he wrote it. He didn't really think that we were all created equal. And what Lincoln is able to do is to take the the moral foundation of, of, of our society, which is the notion of equality and liberty, and make it a reality. He didn't make it a complete reality. No president has ultimate power. I think people who criticize Lincoln tend to misunderstand uh, the, the limitations on power of, of anybody who holds office. But Lincoln did a tremendous amount, and so that's why he becomes such an important figure. Um, and so that's how I got to him. Uh, I will say that when I first started studying Lincoln, I was skeptical about him because he took so long to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. He seemed to uh, never quite tell people what he was doing. Uh, and the more you get to know Lincoln, the more amazing and the smarter and ultimately the more human and humane he becomes. And it seems that uh, recent events uh, have helped to... Uh carry him into the 21st century. Uh, I mean, it, it, in some ways, uh, it, it's seeming like uh, Lincoln is, is more in the, in the public uh, consciousness and, and maybe <laughs> seeming more relevant than he has uh, in decades. Uh, uh, what, what do you think, Paul, of, of the, the sort of the parallels uh, that have been drawn between uh, the election and inauguration of President Obama and uh, and and uh, you know the the stewardship of President Lincoln. Well, it's funny. My I'm at Albany Law School in, in Albany, New York, which is one of the oldest law schools in the country, and it's the oldest in, independent law school. And my endowed chair is named for President William McKinley, who went to Albany as a young Civil War veteran and studied law there before going back to Ohio and ultimately being president. And during the campaign, one of my friends asked me how uh, how I feel about having a chair named for a conservative Republican president. And I said, well, you have to look at things with, with some perspective. If McKinley were alive today, he'd be Bill Clinton. And I said, and Teddy Roosevelt, if he were alive today, he'd be Teddy Kennedy. And then I said, and if Lincoln were alive today, he'd be Barack Obama. 
and and in a sense, I think that that, that Obama has inherited uh, or accepted the the mantle of Lincoln. And what I mean by that is that he is um, very smart, as Lincoln was. He is has a wonderful way with words, as Lincoln did. He understands that his nation faces an enormous crisis, and like Lincoln, he is not simply diving headfirst into let me solve everything at once. He is cautious. He has said things like, you know, we won't get all this done right away, which, of course, Lincoln would have said about about the Civil War. Um, I think he also understands that, that Lincoln stands in the image of the United States as the ultimate supporter of equality, even if if we were to look at Lincoln's world, we would say, well, he didn't accomplish all that. Of course he didn't accomplish all that. Nobody accomplishes all that all at once. Things evolve. Uh, so in a sense, uh, you know, Barack Obama would not be where he was if Abraham Lincoln hadn't done what he did. I was going to ask Jenny that there are some parallels between um, the presidents, but uh, both being good speakers. But Jenny, he really only had two. President Lincoln only had two years of formal education, even though he was a lawyer. How did he get to be such an eloquent speaker? Well, he didn't even have that. I think it was more like nine months. If um, that. If, if that. I mean, all right. the Lincoln. I don't mean to interrupt, but all the Lincoln scholars debate. You know, how little education did he actually have? I think Lincoln's own account was less than a year, um, but he read. Lincoln was, by all accounts, an inveterate reader, and he read principally the King James Bible and Shakespeare and Aesop's Fables, and you see those influences shooting all through his writing, um, particularly the King James Bible. Lincoln, if he was not religious in a traditional sense, um, really understood the the power of religion and the power of words to move people. And he was extremely effective in mobilizing words when he needed to. Now, he didn't always. Uh, Everything he wrote was not as eloquent as the Gettysburg Address or the second um, inaugural address. One of the big complaints about the Emancipation Proclamation among historians is it reads like a bill of lading. Well, it's a legal document. But it's a very precise, very well-reasoned, very well-argued legal document in which he's clearly anticipating objections, legal objections, constitutional objections to what he's doing. Um, he's an absolutely, he's, he is a brilliant man. I, I think really on a scale of nobody I can think of in current public life, uh, I think we can draw some early analogies between Obama and Lincoln, and I certainly think that Obama is the logical culmination of Lincoln's actions. Um, and he has certainly fashioned himself in many ways to be an heir of Lincoln, but a lot of presidents try to get right with Lincoln. I'm not saying that Obama is is using Lincoln cynically. I actually don't think he is. Um, but Lincoln's genius is something that uh, I, I don't think that we have seen since in public life, at least not of anybody that I can think of. He's he's an extraordinary man. Um, let me add, add just a couple of things, because I, I agree with everything that, that uh, you just said, 
And this is not going to be one of these radio shows where the two people are debating each other, I think. Yeah. Um, no. But one of the things that Lincoln did in learning to be a speaker was that he read things out loud. He didn't just sit and read Shakespeare. He spoke Shakespeare. He listened to the cadence of Shakespeare. He he read things all the time. He read out loud. He he drove his law partners crazy because he would read everything out loud. He he worked at being a speaker and he worked at having a sense of language. And I think that's important. I also wanted to say one thing about the Bill of Lading because, of course, we're talking to lawyers. Right. Um, Lincoln fully expected the Emancipation Proclamation to be challenged in the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court that in 1863 was still headed by Chief Justice Taney, who had decided the Dred Scott case. Uh, he expected a severe legal challenge, and she, so he wrote the narrowest possible legal document he could write, using his power as commander-in-chief to take away from the enemy slaves that were being used for the war effort. And this is basically how he phrases the, the, the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, one of the interesting things about the proclamation is that um, the, um, the, the, the people have criticized it for being a bill of lading, but of course what we know is that for a railroad lawyer, a bill of lading was a very important document. It was the document that allowed you to have trade between, say, New York and Illinois, even though no one... Um, even though the parties didn't know each other. So for, for Lincoln, uh, if you'd told him it has all the moral grandeur of a bill of lading, he would have said thank you. Um, there, there's a uh, London newspaper uh, columnist who's writing about the war at the time, and he writes, the most formidable, formidable decrees which he hurls at the enemy and which will never lose their historic significance resemble, as the author intends them to, an ordinary summons sent by one lawyer to another. Uh, that that newspaper writer in the London Times was Karl Marx. He understood what Lincoln was all about. Well, I think, too, that there are a lot of arguments among historians about who freed the slaves. And some will say the Emancipation Proclamation. Others will say the slaves freed themselves. Another school is that the army freed the slaves, the Union Army. And then there are others who say, well, all three. It was all three. Ultimately, of course, it's the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment lays the whole thing to rest, because I think this was going to be a question in the post-war era without the 13th Amendment, which are the slaves still free, or what happens to them? And, and it, the whole thing is taken care of by the 13th Amendment. And, of course, Lincoln's instrumental in getting that off the ground. Jenny, I wanted to ask you about your book, The, the Copperheads, uh, which uh, was was a group, as I understand it, who were opposed to what President Lincoln opposed to the Civil War and, and opposed to much of what President Lincoln was was doing in terms of carrying the war forward. Uh, is that right? I mean, tell me a little bit about them and, and very, do they have any contemporary parallels? Uh, it, it, they were very much opposed to Lincoln. They were, um, they called themselves conservatives. They would be very comfortable in the company of somebody like Justice Scalia. They had a strict constructionist understanding of the Constitution, and they were very, very concerned from the outset of the war about what Lincoln was doing. They thought that much of what he was doing from raising troops uh, to the Emancipation Proclamation to the draft many other things, the suspension of habeas corpus, were unconstitutional and well beyond the powers that were 
uh, given to him in the Constitution. They called him a tyrant. They were very concerned that democratic government had been overthrown by the black Republicans, as they called them. And, uh, in fact, they were not even sure that the war itself was legal. They, There is nothing in the Constitution about the terms of membership. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you can or cannot leave the Union. And so their understanding of, of the Constitution was that the southern states were entirely within their rights to leave because there was nothing in the Constitution that said that they could not. So they gave Lincoln um, a very hard time throughout the war, and their influence waxed and waned really in inverse relationship to how well the Union armies were doing. But by the summer of 1864, the Union armies were doing terribly. They were all stalled all over the South, and the Copperheads were at the just about able not quite, but certainly close to taking over the Democratic Party. And what what happens is that Sherman takes Atlanta, and public opinion does a 180 literally overnight. It's an extraordinarily an extraordinary shift in public opinion. Lincoln, who thought for sure that he was going to lose his reelection bid in November, goes on, of course, to have a huge victory there, and and that is what allows the Union to move forward to an a, an unconditional surrender with the Confederacy. Um, in terms of contemporary parallels, uh, there are certainly some parallels with present-day Democrats who were worried about what President Bush was up to in terms of civil liberties. But um, I read a, a number of comments on my book that said, well, the Democrats of today are just like the Democrats of yesterday. And, and that really isn't true. There are really significant differences um, between their positions in principally what kind of a war this is. The Civil War for the United States was an existential crisis. There was a lot of question about whether the Union would even survive without the South, without the Southern states. It certainly would not have survived in the same way. The only other republic at the time was Switzerland in the entire world. Um, a, A republican form of government was seen as very much still an experiment. And that is not the case, um, with the, the war in Iraq. Um, it, it just does not pose that kind of a threat to the United States. So I think that is a, a really, really critical difference. And I think that um, in the case of the Civil War, the Copperheads never really understood or at least would ever acknowledge the kind of stakes that were at issue with the Civil War. What, what kind of lessons do you think that Barack Obama can take from President Lincoln's presidency and start applying them to uh, his presidency? Well, I think that his idea of um, of bringing some members of the other party into the into the cabinet is clearly one borrowed directly from Lincoln's playbook. He also seems to understand that he needs to listen to regular people and not just the chattering classes, 
which is something that Lincoln was very good at. He he opened his office a couple times a week to anyone. Um, it, it did not matter what your station in life was. You could go see the president and talk to him. And people would. And Lincoln called them his public opinion baths. And I think that Obama seems to have a a sense very clearly that he needs to be out of Washington talking to um, regular folks. And that will help keep him grounded if he maintains that. Um, patience and understanding, and I, again, I have the sense that he, he, he understands this, that sometimes a half a loaf is all you can get at the moment, and then you start working on the rest. And Lincoln was very good at making those kinds of compromises and then working slowly toward getting the rest. And that's the political process. Um, but you have to sometimes work incrementally. And I do have the sense that Obama feels that way. Paul, did you want to comment on that? Well, I, I wanted to make a couple of points. One is, of course, that Lincoln lived in a very different world than we do. Sure. And when you start making analogies between Lincoln and, uh, say, the, the war in Iraq or the Civil War and the war in Iraq, you have to realize that we're living in a very, very different world. When the Civil War begins, there's no federal uh, government to speak of. There's very, very small federal government. There's no federal police force. There are very few federal laws. At the very beginning of the war, pro-Confederate sympathizers, Copperheads in Maryland, are burning bridges that would take railroad trains from the north to Washington, D.C. Now, today, if I burned a bridge, the FBI and various other federal agencies would be all over me and I'd be prosecuted under federal law. In those days, there was nothing the president could do except to declare martial law and arrest somebody um, by suspending the habeas corpus to stop sabotage because there was no system involved. Uh, the other thing, of course, to note is that the Constitution allows you to suspend the writ of habeas corpus during a rebellion, and clearly Lincoln faced a rebellion. Uh, right. We did not face a rebellion uh, during the, the, at the present time. We were not invaded. You might say we were invaded on 9-11. If that's the case, the invasion was over that day. Um, so, so the constitutional moments are so very different that I think when you draw these kinds of analogies, it's kind of silly. It's sort of like saying, you know, why didn't Grant use tanks uh, when he was trying to, uh, um, you know, defeat Lee? Because well, they didn't have tanks yet. I mean, there's just some things that are so different than then than, than they are now that analogies don't work. And I think it's important when we think about Lincoln and Obama not to try and make specific analogies because they live in such a different world. But one thing about Obama that is so Lincoln-esque is his use of language. And what Lincoln understood is is that you can lead by eloquence. You can lead by explaining to people what is going on and giving people a higher purpose. And, and that's what Lincoln did fabulously. In the Gettysburg Address, he gives the nation a higher purpose for fighting this horribly bloody war. In his second inaugural, he gives a higher purpose for what he's doing. And that, I think, is very important. I, I think one of the things that we've lacked for at least the last eight years, and maybe for much, much longer, is any sense of eloquence coming out of our national leadership. Uh, somebody who can give a speech and people can feel good because the speech means something to us. Uh, this has been very important at various times in our history, and Lincoln uh, was one of the masters of this, as was Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, 
We've, uh, we're going to take a short break right now. Stay with us, and we'll be back in a moment to talk more about Lincoln the president and perhaps Lincoln the lawyer. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Huron Consulting Group's legal consulting practice, a leading provider of consulting and business services to corporations and law firms, helps align strategy, people, processes, and technology to meet the goals of the organization. We also help prepare and plan for all phases of discovery in a legal dispute or investigation. We establish an effective records management program that creates cost savings and enhanced productivity while minimizing risk. Check out Velocity, the first comprehensive e-discovery solution. For more information, visit us at www.huronconsultinggroup.com. When it comes to protecting your legal practice, how confident are you that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price? At the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, we know that law firms insured with us can answer yes on both counts. Visit our website at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. TopClassActions.com ethically connects attorneys to potential clients. At topclassactions.com, attorneys can review submissions, locate effective plaintiffs for new lawsuits, or advertise their settlement to add more claimants. With membership in our attorney network, you review complaints submitted by Top Class Actions viewers, and it's free to try. No credit card required for the free membership. Go to topclassactions.com slash attorney. That's topclassactions.com slash attorney. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back Professor Paul Finkelman from Albany Law School and Professor Jenny Weber, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Kansas. Well, we've been talking a little bit about how President Lincoln and Barack Obama are somewhat similar. What what types of differences do you see? I mean, we've talked also about some of those differences, but there are some significant differences between uh, the current uh, administration and the administration that we've, and some of them have focused on the issue of war and and uh, in, interior rebellion. But what else do you see? Well, I would I would agree with Paul that that you you do have to be very careful about analogies. That I, I think you can make some of them, but I think you need to be extremely cautious and and realize that this is a completely different time that we live in than that Lincoln lived in. And one difference that um, I, I would just mention off the top of my head is that this is by you know this is clearly a grave economic crisis that we're facing. It's not clear to me at this point that is it's an existential crisis that it's the kind of crisis that um, threatens the future of the nation in terms of its being able to continue to exist, where that is the kind of 
crisis that was facing Lincoln and was from the day he took office. And of course, it just got worse um, very shortly after he took office. The other thing about that, of course, is, is that the existential crisis also had a sort of obviously concrete solution. If you can defeat the Confederate armies, you'll put the Union back together. Um, you know, we cannot send an army to Wall Street and then defeat Wall Street or, or send an army out and and fight the demons of the economy. It's, it's, a, it's a very different kind of crisis in, in that respect. There's, there's no kind of set of obvious solutions. Lincoln's problem is, what, where do I find a general who can win this war? Um, I, I don't think there, there, there's an easy map as to how you, you, you solve an economic crisis like this. Um, the other thing is, of course, that, that the media is so different. Uh, Lincoln didn't have to worry about the nightly news attacking everything he did. He didn't have to worry about the copperheads uh, getting on the radio and or getting on television or having talk radio shows and constantly berating him, constantly belittling, belittling him and beating him up. They did it in the newspapers. They did it in public speeches. But it wasn't the kind of instant, immediate stuff that right. someone like Obama faces. So we don't, we don't have the kind of time to link it. You don't have time to, uh, time to, to, to think today the way you did then. Right. It wasn't a 24-hour news cycle. But, but it, I do think that the press plays an important role. The, you have the first battle of Bull Run uh, in part because the New York Tribune is saying uh, on to Richmond. Every day, it's on their masthead. And Horace Greeley feels so bad about prompt, in his view, prompting the first battle of Bull Run that he has a nervous breakdown afterward. So um, the press does have influence. It is widely read. Um, right. You do, there's an editor by 1864 out in Wisconsin who is openly advocating for Lincoln's assassination. But it it is not the 24-hour news cycle, fishbowl, echo chamber that it is today. I wanted to get in a a, a mention uh, of the 24 years or so before Lincoln was in the White House while he was practicing law. Yeah, there's uh, the the Law Library of Congress recently launched a, a kind of a fascinating online exhibit, I guess, of a, a number of documents, pleadings he drafted, uh, articles about him, uh, his law practice. And Paul, I I know you've looked at this a little bit. I wonder if you could just kind of give us some some sense of Lincoln the lawyer before he was Lincoln the president. Well, uh, of course, before he's Lincoln the lawyer, he's Lincoln the politician. He gets elected to the state legislature and serves uh, two two and a half terms, and while he's in the legislature, he starts reading the law to become a lawyer. So he's always been a politician, even as he's a lawyer. But his law practice is his bread and butter, and in those days, law practices were very small. You you see a fee book where he gets $5 or $4 or $6 for, for arguing a case. There are sometimes when he gets much more, when he, when he works for the Illinois Central Railroad, his fees are higher. Um, but it's a kind of a volume practice, and it's a volume practice of a, of a two, he's in a series of two-person firms. He's in three different two-person firms. Um, it's not the kind of, of practice that most lawyers have today. Uh, there are, of 
course, no um, no Lexus or Westlaw or anything like that, although there are plenty of form books, and, and he has to use these form books to do the day-to-day work. It's small. It's a lot of debt collection. It's some um, real estate. It's occasionally suing uh, a railroad, more often suing on behalf of a railroad. Uh, one of the important things about his law law practice is that he has a number of black clients, and in mid-19th century America, most whites never worked with blacks, and certainly never worked with blacks in a situation where the blacks were actually paying them, paying their salary. And yet, in Lincoln's case, Lincoln has a number of black clients, one of whom is a fairly successful entrepreneur in Springfield. So part of Lincoln's law practice is he, he learns to see black people not as the, as the uh, prejudices of the day would have it, as, as ignorant and stupid and lazy and, and incompetent, because those are, the, those are the things you hear from a very racist culture. But Lincoln says, sees his black clients as being kind of like him. Uh, his, his, uh, William Florville, who's his client in Springfield, is kind of a, a black Lincoln, a man on the make, a man of the 19th century who wants to improve himself, invests in real estate, gets ahead, kind of a lot like Lincoln. Um, but Lincoln is, is a, you know, a day-to-day lawyer. He, he's, he's a good, he's a good courtroom lawyer. By all accounts, he's, he's an excellent trial lawyer, uh, because he knows how to play to a jury. He doesn't, he doesn't try to overwhelm the jury with erudition. He tries to get the jury to see the issues from Lincoln's perspective, and he's pretty good at that. Is it true that he was the first to get a judge to take judicial notice of uh, the old farmer's almanac or, or, or something along uh, those lines? Well, there's, there's this, this very famous case, the almanac case, uh, which is mostly in a movie uh, about young, I think it's called Young Abe Lincoln or something, uh, from the 1930s. And it's a murder trial in which the the question of uh, comes about whether somebody witnessed something because... Um, they could see the the murder taking place at night because there was a full moon. And Lincoln pulls out the almanac and says, "Aha! There was not a full moon that night. Therefore, this this guy's lying." Um, I have no idea if he's the first person to get judicial notice of, of the use of an almanac, but it's a trial case. It's nothing. Uh, it's it's not a very big case. I think it's played out much more in because it was the focus of a movie. And it's not clear, of course, whether the guy, in fact, was innocent or guilty. Well, we've reached that point in our program where we need to wrap up and get your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners. So if you would, please, uh, let's start with you, Jenny, and and give us your uh, final thoughts about President Lincoln and then your contact information so our listeners can reach you. Well, one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately is Lincoln has really vast talents. He also has certain characteristics that I think that had the war gone a different way, we would have, in some ways, we celebrate these characteristics uh, for why Lincoln was successful. But I think we could blame these very same characteristics for why he was a failed president had the war gone another way, as it came very close to going on more than one occasion. I think that ultimately then, when we think about Lincoln, and as I said, I do believe he's our greatest president, but I think his reputation is entirely contingent on the outcome of the war. If, if, the, if 
the North doesn't win the war, Lincoln is not a great president anymore. Uh, he becomes the goat for historians forever. Um, so I think his, his, uh, reputation is not as, um, easy to come to a conclusion about, uh, as, as it appears on the surface. I, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, and I, I will leave it at that. Uh, you know, I'm inclined to respond to that. There's nothing, uh, succeeds like success. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously greatness implies that you succeed in what you're doing. And, um, Lincoln succeeds. Lincoln also is, is seen as a great president because he's surrounded by such, uh, uh such midgets, uh, such pygmies, such, such minuscule presidents. You, you think of the people who preceded him. Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan. These are not exactly household words. And he's followed by Andrew Johnson, who's arguably the, the second worst president in American history, preceded by James Buchanan, who's arguably the, first, the worst president in American history. So he, he towers above people, not simply because he's six foot four, but because the people around him are, are such awful presidents. But he is successful. You know, he, he guides the nation this horrible crisis. He gives the nation a purpose. And that, that, I think, is, again, the tie back to someone like Barack Obama. That is, Lincoln is able to use the power of language, the power of ideas, to give the nation a purpose as to what it is doing, why so many hundreds of thousands of people are, are being killed and wounded in warfare. And that's very important, because without that purpose, the war uh, becomes simply a... a a bloodbath, and Lincoln gives it a purpose, and I think that's his greatness. Um, you can reach me since you wanted information. Uh, my email address is pfink at Albany Law, all one word, dot edu. So it's pfink at Albany Law, dot edu. Jenny, mine, you didn't give us your. Right. Mine is jlweber, jlweber, at ku dot edu. Well, Bob, that wraps it up for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. You had a thought? Uh, well, I was just going to give a, a special thanks to our, our two guests for joining us today. And uh, as as usual with these topics, uh, there's never enough time to fully explore them. So I, I'm glad we were able to get in as deep as we were for this, this half an hour. And uh, I really appreciate uh, uh, Paul and Jenny, both of you, giving your time to be on the program today. Yes, thank you both very much. It was a great show. And to our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows on LegalTalkNetwork.com. And in the iTunes library as well. And uh, Craig, I'll talk to you next week. We will see you then, Bob. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.